Welcome to the Final Girls podcast. This is Anna, co-founder of the Final Girls Collective and your podcast host. If you're new to the Final Girls podcast, welcome. We're going to be spending the next few months talking about the most elegant of movie monsters, the vampire. In each episode, I'm joined by a special guest to dive deep into a vampire movie or two. And today, we're going to be looking at one of the most original and one of the earliest depictions of a vampire on screen. F.W. Morneau's 1922 bootleg, technically, adaptation of Dracula. I'm, of course, talking about Nosferatu, a symphony of horror. And in the second part of the episode, we'll be going into Werner Herzog's reimagining of Morneau's film, Nosferatu the Vampire, starring his tempestuous close collaborator Klaus Kinski as Count Dracula. Both of these adaptations of the vampire story present an equally distinctive and grotesque vision of the vampire. I'm joined in this episode by film critic and silent film specialist Pamela Hutchinson to discuss all things Nosferatu and dive into the different adaptations of the vampire tale by Morneau and Herzog. If you're new to the podcast, please know that we discuss the films in detail from pretty much the very beginning. Both of the Nosferatu films that we'll be discussing are essentially adaptations of the Dracula story with slight differences. But if you are averse to any discussion of a film that you haven't seen, consider this your spoiler warning. This season is made possible with the support of our video, who bring you the very best in cult, horror and genre films, specializing in deluxe, definitive home entertainment editions with uncut versions, newly commissioned artwork and specially curated extras. Their collection now spans more than 500 physical releases and throughout the season we'll be recommending a film that we love from their vast collection. This week, our pick is exploitation master Roger Corman's take on a classic tale by Edgar Allan Poe, The Fall of the House of Usher, starring horror icon Vincent Price. For more information, visit ourfilms.com and I will link to it in the show notes as well. But for now, please enjoy our discussion about all things Nosferatu. Pamela, welcome back to the podcast. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. It's 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 been far too long since I was talking to you. It really has, and it's uh, completely unacceptable. <laughs> well, I mean, I you know, I remember thinking when you said you were doing another series, I was like, well, that would be the post lockdown series. But uh, yeah, lockdown's catching up with you. Yeah, no, and also, frankly, what else am I going to do if I'm just stuck <laughs> by myself in my house? <laughs> lockdown. I'm going to watch vampire movies and talk to people. Exactly. You're never alone with vampires and your <laughs> online friends. Well, exactly. Thank you so much for coming on to talk about two versions of Nosferatu. Yeah, Nosferatu 2. two. <laughs> Something like that. It, it was funny in my head, is what I'm saying. It's funny for me too, so please, please keep them coming. Because <laughs> every time I've gotten an email from you, there was another vampire pun and I just couldn't, I couldn't rise to the occasion. <laughs> But you thanked them, right? I did. Yeah. So anyway, let's kick off first by talking about Nosferatu, the Murnau film from 1922.
find it hard to contain myself when I am asked to talk about this film. I just think it's so incredibly beautiful. This film is one of cinema's original vampire movies. And where does this sit in the history of horror cinema? And in cinema in general, really, I guess. So this, like, to your first question, there's a really annoying answer, which I'm sure like you've heard me say before, which is like, well, actually, horror is a post-silent film kind of genre. So, like, it's before horror. I mean, but that really ignores the actual fact of the matter, which is that it is relatively late in the very short cycle of pure German Expressionism. So German Expressionism, people know the the German films from the silent era with the tilted angles and the strange painted sets and it all kicked off with Cabinet of Dr Caligari. And we can see the influence of that style throughout German cinema of the 1920s and we can see it go obviously in with the emigres into Hollywood and film noir. Very pure German Expressionism didn't last very long at all and, and Nosferatu is kind of the tail end of that. So there is already this rush of horror films, scary horror films that weren't called horror films at all, that it's sort of jumping on the end of. So it's both pre-horror and actually quite late in this particular run of a classic proto-horror, maybe mm. we could call it. Yeah, I was about to say, if it's not strictly a horror film, what would you call it? Or what was it kind of, how was it built at the time? I mean, you know, it's a romance, right? I mean, it's a very beautiful pastoral romance that just happens to have a terrifying monster from the undead. I mean, really, I think that, you know, genre wasn't really a big mm. thing in the way people talked about selling movies at that time. Mm-hmm. And people would have known exactly where they were with this film because they'd have seen that it was historical, that it was pastoral, that it was romantic, that it had a supernatural element. They'd have seen things, you know, like the De Golem and, and so on that were beginning to get draw on mythology and superstition in this way. So this was also infamous because it's it's loosely based on Bram Stoker's Dracula, but they couldn't clear the rights, so they couldn't obtain the rights to adapt it. So it's sort of an unofficial adaptation of the novel. Um, where, how do you think it sort of draws from the no- the Stoker's novel and adapts it into this new, into the cinematic language? So, I mean, you know, loosely adapted is like a really polite way to put it. Basically, (laughs) it's adapted. You know, they changed the names and hardly anything else. I mean, they wanted to adapt the novel and they, as you say, they couldn't get the rights. And uh, this is a problem, as we're probably going to talk about, that they got sued by Bram Stoker's widow. But, um, yeah, it is basically... Dracula. I have to say that because mm. I think that, you know, the Dracula story from Bram Stoker's novel is very specific and has all this, mm-hmm. you know, well, it's a real horror story, isn't it? Because it's about estate agents, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I say that with love and I'm hoping that my house move goes through. Uh, but, you know, it's a very specific story, mm-hmm. very specific set of characters and scenarios and places. And it, it really clearly maps onto that. It does come from a sort of visual idea as well. So the the producer of this film is this quite mysterious character, the producer and the production designer. Mm-hmm. Um, his name is Albin Grau. And he said that when he was uh, a soldier in the First World War, he met a chap who said that his father had, you know, died but been reborn, you know, bec- entered the undead and that mm-hmm. he'd been buried in a certain um, a certain ceremony. And, and Albin Grau was very interested in the occult is pretty much what what we know about him so very susceptible to this kind of story possibly i don't know enough possibly the kind of person who would concoct such a story but 
that was what the the visual idea of that was what started the film mm. and then they went to Bram Stoker and then yeah so Henrik Galeen wrote the the screenplay and and Myrna rewrote a little bit of it but mm. basically it's all based on those two ideas this visual idea of someone joining the undead and the incredibly famous successful and brilliant novel which would be a great thing to make a film on <laughs> And what do you make of the way that the vampire or the undead Count Orlok is depicted in, in this film? I mean, he's really, really strange looking. Mm. I mean, to me, the, there's there's two aspects to the way he looks. The the sort of hollow eyes and the, the extended ears and nose and those strange teeth, which just look like they're ready to be weapons. Um, it's unlike the kind of vampire that we see in later horror films where you almost have someone seductive and handsome. Mm. It looks like you could meet him at a dinner party until he flashes his fangs. But also it, with Nosferatu, um, it's the way that he moves whether he's springing up on his heels from the coffin or whether he's sort of gliding it's terrifying he's completely uncanny uh, he looks almost like he could be a human person but entirely like he must not be yes you're so right it's the fact that he doesn't look human yeah. just similar enough uh to to pass as human but something quite weird about it even the way that he lifts things up or the way that he walks the way that he moves around all these coffins and all these things it's so off-putting because he is he's quite small in size as well so just seeing him lift all of these presumably really heavy <laughs> objects just becomes really unsettling as well because what do you make of the way that the, the violence, you know, the blood feeding, the, the stalking uh, is portrayed in the film? I mean, it seems very strange to us now because mm. um, it's almost touchless. Basically, it's just these shadows that fall over people. I think it's, you know, one of the greatest things that have happened in film history, basically, the way they use the shadows in this film. The shadows stand in for so much more. And it's interesting that whenever we think about German expressionism and we think about film law coming off that, we sort of mm. talk about shadows. Oh, maybe they represent, you know, sort of amount of moral murkiness, a darkness and unknown that's, that's, you know, within the frame, it's within the story. Story. but here they genuinely just feel like someone's shadow could actually harm you and that's quite a terrifying idea and you see it again in um, a film like Murnau's Faust where we have the sort of shadow of death fall over an entire town and, and that's what this is literally it's the shadow of death and it, it feel, falls, uh, fulfills all kinds of metaphors that are readily sort of subsumed into the Dracula story and particularly into this version of it about you know the pandemic mm. and the war and so on. It's, I mean, we're not expecting gore here at all, but the way they do it is very cleverly um, gives you something that almost feels like that touch. Mm. And I, I wanted to pick up on something that you mentioned, kind of how it stands in for um, bigger fears, or especially kind of around that time. And one of the notable changes from the novel is shifting all the action from the Count trying to move to London to him trying to buy a property in the town of Wisburg. I think, mm -hmm. hope I'm not mispronouncing that. And the hysteria and the death and the, the kind of the the griminess that he that his mere presence brings to the town and kind of takes over the town and the hysteria that arises from that. What do you how do you think Nosferatu was kind of and Morneau were playing on the the anxieties of the German public at the time? I mean I think it, you know there's no other way to read this film and, mm. and 
other than, I mean, there are many aspects you could add to it, but you can't talk about this film and the story they're trying to tell without thinking about that idea that, you know, to live in Germany at that time, mm. to have had, uh, you know, obviously so many lives lost to the war. Mm. And when you think about the way that the sailors disappear uh, on the ship, it's sort of like you know, symbolic of that. But, you know, the state that the country was left in after, you know, after the First World War, and, you know, it was very depleted and the economy obviously was in a terrible way. Mm. And then, of course, the, the flu pandemic and so many lives lost something invisible and obviously it's something that very much uh, we can all appreciate a little bit more now yeah. uh, than than in other years sadly but you know these things are terrifying and it's very specifically to do with what's happening in Germany and in Europe so it, you can see why they keep it on the continent. Mm. You mentioned kind of a little bit briefly before but how within the work of, of Morneau and there's quite a few of his films that have been lost since. But how does this sit within his filmmaking and, and his particular interests? I mean, it's absolutely the film that sort of broke him through, um, despite sort of limitations on, on distribution. You know, it is a sort of early great achievement of his visual mm. poetics. It's it's one of his most beautiful films, despite one of the earliest and low budget films. The the amount of artistry that he gets into this film is really quite stunning. And you know, mm. if you've seen uh, you know, obviously the Hollywood films like The Sunrise or City Girl, or if you've seen a Faust particularly, it, it, you can see exactly the same stunning visual imagination. It's also got a lot of um, resonations with a lot of his films are about these kind of like temptation and uh, scenarios and the seducers obviously like Faust, obviously like Sunrise with the vamp, uh, <laughs> a vamp rather than a vampire, you know, taking over someone's life and, mm. and being a malign influence on them. And and so you can see sort of thematically and artistically, it's exactly, you know, where he's going with his work. I mean, sadly, he died so young. We didn't get to see much more of his uh, work. He died sort of just around the time that the sound era was coming in, having completed Taboo. But, you know, who knows what would have happened if he could have uh, lived to see uh, Herzog's work. <laughs> Um, I can't wait to get into that one after yeah. we're done with this this first Nosferatu. But <laughs> you you alluded to it a little bit before because the film was um, an adaptation of Dracula, but without having cleared the rights. So and and the the producers were sued by Bram Stoker's widow, and the film was almost almost disappeared from history because it was ordered to be all copies. I think were ordered to be destroyed. So what was kind of the the story behind this lawsuit and and the film's thankful survival? I mean, basically, you know, she sued quite rightly. I understand because you know, if if you know you let this one stand, then obviously you're not going to have a leg to stand on to um uh, to pursue any other similar claims. So you know, you'd constantly have people ripping off your husband's work but uh, you know and they the, they didn't have a case really against it at all there's changes to the story but I would argue not enough uh, so the idea was exactly that as you say that they ordered all the prints to be destroyed which sounds like quite a, a, a successful idea but it's very hard to contain the number of prints that are out there mm. in the world and so you, what you had for years with Nosferatu is it wasn't a lost film. There were prints in archives, like um, Iris Barry had one in MoMA, I think, and there was one in the Cinematheque Française, but it wasn't widely available. And some of these prints, you know, were missing intertitles or often slightly different versions. And then there was a re-edited sound version that came out in the 30s. And, and so what it becomes is 
the you know, perfect thing for, for horror fans actually is is the cult film, the mm. little scene film, the film where everyone's seen certain stills. Um, there might have been a few screenings. Obviously, that situation is completely reversed now. It's been restored several times and it's in many, you can buy it on Blu-ray and DVD and I'm sure you can rent it online for a few quid. Um, so it, it, now it's completely available. But there was this point where it, it was this kind of sort of shadowy object for a while, but it was never entirely lost. I love the idea that you call it a shadowy object. So what was its kind of cult status? And especially, kind of, this is a, a double-pronged question, really. Kind of, what was it like when it was that shadowy, kind of almost forbidden film? And where can, can you see its its influence on, on other films? If I had a list for you of where you could see the influence of Nosferatu on other films, this would become an incredibly boring podcast. Um, <laughs> it, it's everywhere. You could, you know, ring a bell when you're mm. watching any kind of spooky horror film or even just a thriller. The the particular favourite example being the the shot the sh- of um, Orlok ascending the stairs where mm-hmm. you see just his shadow. It's endlessly copied. Mm. And you can get some of these looks from a still or a clip mm. um, from, you know, an image of a face. And so... People who haven't seen Nosferatu think they've seen Nosferatu. People who haven't seen Nosferatu have seen quite a lot of Nosferatu. I mean, it it sort of has a value beyond a film. A lot of people, Mm. I know horror fans hate the idea of people saying it's it's more than a horror film. I honestly think Nosferatu is just more than a film. It's an idea. It's a kind of visual world all of its own. Oh my God, could you expand on that? How do you think it's more than a film? I, I think that there is an idea of what Nosferatu is and the way that it uses light and shadows and the figure that it created that sort of goes beyond simply the people who have seen mm. this, you know, 90-minute version of, of, of an audiovisual loop, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's got more cultural value than that. And I think that's because, you know, because it's created by a great director, it's beautifully mm-hmm. made, because it is based off this incredibly powerful story, you know, there's, there's everything that went into it and the timing of the film... I feel that people have an idea of what expressionism is. They sort mm-hmm. of go to Nosferatu. And also the great thing about the the way that Nosferatu plays with shadows and mm-hmm. darkness and anything you might call horror or expressionism is it takes all those tropes that you could see on... Uh, so let's start know, by discussing... Sort of set-based films Mono's like Kamigari and takes them outside into the real world. Mm-hmm. So suddenly you have this Nosferatu, idea that shadows uh, and horror can happen in daylight, you know on the open water and things like that and in people's private homes and it's really just it just I think it expands I don't think anybody can have not seen an image that is you know inspired by Nosferatu at this point it's almost like the idea of Father Christmas or fairies or something it just goes beyond you know one source that that's my opinion I know it sounds quite uh I love it, it. extravagant but yeah exactly I think I think genuinely this is something that fits into the imagination mm. and I think we can talk about that more when we talk about the Herzog but yeah it goes beyond just you know a film that some people have seen and I think that's partly to do with its sort of strange distribution history as well mm. as everything else but it's just it's just a great great work. I love this idea of a film that becomes um so so much a part of the visual imagination of popular culture that it transcends the actual film itself. Mm-hmm. It's almost so murky and diluted by just how far it's reached. Mm-hmm. And before we move on to Herzog's version of The Vampire, you, you've talked a lot about kind of its influence and even people who may have not seen 
Morneau's Nosferatu will kind of recognize images of it, recognize the, the image of Count Orlok. But would you recommend that contemporary horror fans seek it out if they if they haven't seen it yet? I mean, I'd, I'd recommend that everyone sees it. I'd recommend that, you know, your mother's dog watches it, you know, right away. But, you know, I think it, it's a really interesting question to say, would contemporary horror fans like it? If you, if you are, um, you know, if you consider yourself a horror fan and I, you define horror as those films that scare you, those mm. films that terrify you, you might find it quite frustrating because it spends a lot of the film not trying to horrify you. And then when it does it more unsettles you than horrifies you. There's no thrill in this film. Um, on the other hand, I think you'd be frustrated if you went your whole life watching all the films that had taken a little bit here and there from it in respectful ways, I'm not suggesting anything else, and not seen the original. And I just think, you know, if you love cinema, you should watch this film. You know, I, as you know, Anna, um, I always consider myself someone who doesn't really like horror, apart from all the horror films I watch and love. <laughs> and so <laughs> and so I think well of course if I love it then anyone will but uh yeah I, it's 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 one of those films you know I know people rail against ideas of canons no one should say you must watch anything but I genuinely think that I genuinely think I believe that people will get a lot from this film mm. it might take a little patience if you're not used to watching silent films at first but uh it's it's well worth it and a slightly more specific add-on to that question you mentioned before there are multiple versions of this film now, restorations, different uh, different variations with different soundtracks. Which particular version would you recommend people seek out? I mean, I think the most recent restoration that I've seen is so beautiful because it c combines all the tints that we saw in the original. And you really have to sort of know, and I'm sure you do, um, again, without going too forward, I mean, Herzog uses colour in a really interesting way. In Nosferatu, the colour tints are used for some practical purposes to tell you what kind of time of day it is, but also they really add to the beauty and that kind of sweetly pretty um, aspect of the film. As far as scores go, I mean, there have been so many, and what I really would recommend everyone mm -hmm. to do, and I know that it's a bit bittersweet to do this, anytime you can just see it with a live score is the best thing, because there is with this film, I really don't want anyone to press pause. I don't want anyone to get distracted. I want you mm -hmm. to have the full Nosferatu experience and be spellbound by it. You know, lock yourself in the cinema with a live band when you can, <laughs> and watch it being played live, because there's so much about the acting in this film that's actually quite musical. I'm always intrigued to see what musicians do do with it. Mm. And well, hopefully we'll be able to do that sometime soon. Soon, I hope, soon. yes. <laughs> so let's move on now to the Werner Herzog's 1979 reimagining of Nosferatu, the vampire. seems burdened with a curse. One sailor and our cook have disappeared without a trace. Nosferatu, the vampire, 
Coming from 20th Century Fox. Nosferatu, the vampire, a film unlike any Dracula film ever made. Nosferatu, the vampire. Okay, so I know so much less about this film. Um, so this <laughs> film, I mean, it's one of those films, I think, technically, okay, it came out just before I was born, right? But still just not my period but you know <laughs> well, like a the, challenge <laughs> one of the things I find is really interesting about this film is when I was talking about um the influence of Nosferatu the 1922 version mm-hmm. as someone who talks about silent film on the internet quite a lot people often um have a complete cross-identification between these two films they will share pictures of Klaus Kinski and say I love silent film the the sort of cross-identification between this film and the original mm-hmm. is really strong in the public imagination, I think. And I find that really strange because we always talk about remakes in terms of is it better or is it worse? And mm-hmm. we're always ready for it to be worse. This film seems to almost have just continued the love for Nosferatu. Mm-hmm. I mean, it does many other interesting things as well, but it feels like a continuation of that work in some way. People will watch Nosferatu 1922 because they love the 1979 version. Mm. Which I guess is kind of a real a compliment to pay for the film because Herzog is is a really massive fan of the Murnau film and of Murnau in particular. And I think he called it the greatest film to come out of Germany, period. Not just the greatest horror or vampire film. So what are what are your overall thoughts on, on his interpretation of the vampire story? Well, obviously, first of all, I have to say that clearly Werner Herzog doesn't like it as much as I did because he calls it a film and I've said it's more than a film. So (laughs) he's not really that big a fan. If this this tiny podcast becomes a sort of call out challenge on your part, Pamela, to Werner Herzog to have a Nosferatu off, can I please record it? Because I would like that to be documented for posterity. Oh, obviously that was just a flippant joke on my part, but it does amuse me because obviously one of the many great things about the great filmmaker Werner Herzog is he does express himself with such strength and enthusiasm. The idea that I would say, oh, I think you've toned it down a bit there, is, is quite hilarious. Um, so, yes, I share Werner Herzog's high opinion of the mm-hmm. Murnau film. I think what he does here is really beautiful. And I had seen it years ago, but I rewatched it for this podcast mm-hmm. and... I had slightly misremembered some things. And one of the things I love what he does is he really finds a way to find images that talk to the original images yes. in Nosferatu. Instead of doing what billions of people have mm. done and and just recast those same images with slightly different actors, so many shots from Nosferatu get, get uh, repeated and copied and plagiarised and homaged and everything like that. But he finds other ways to use shadows and light and uh, to sort of continue the same aesthetic, which I just, you know, watching it again, you know, in the dark days of lockdown on my little home projector, I just appreciated it all the more. So can you elaborate on that kind of how do you think that he continues and um, places his Nosferatu the vampire in conversation with Morno's Nosferatu? I mean, so 
the obvious thing to do is that, you know, he does have, he doesn't have, I mean, he is talking to Nosferatu, you know, we were having lots of conversations about this at home before we watched it, mm-hmm. because um, my partner Googled it and it said, Google says it's just Dracula, and I'm like, it's not Dracula, it's Nosferatu, mm-hmm. and you can tell it's Nosferatu because of way the way that the Count looks. You know, and you can tell because of the the period setting of the film, and they went back to similar locations. They couldn't mm-hmm. get quite the same town. It's it's stealth, isn't it? Mm-hmm. But I just like the fact that we have other scenes of shadows being used in clever ways. Uh, the fa- well, I know that the rats were not very well treated, but you know the focus on the rats. And um, we have the same scene of the the coffins being loaded, but shot from a different angle. You're constantly being reminded of the old film, and. Not necessarily in a bad way, you know, we've all seen the trailer for the Black Narcissus series where they restaged the bell ringing shot and you just think, well, that's clearly just not as good as the original. Whereas I feel I felt that I constantly was being reminded mm. of the previous film in a way that made me run them both in my head at the same time. Mm. Does that make sense? It does, yeah. And <laughs> when I was rewatching it last night, um, I'd also seen it a long time ago and rewatched it last night for the purposes of this and... I was really struck by kind of how it blends three things. It blends Herzog and his own interest in making a vampire film. And then it blends, obviously, the the influence of Murnau's Nosferatu. But then it also blends Dracula because it does kind of Mm. replicate the story from the book a little more closely than Murnau's does. And the character of Count Orlok is not called Count Orlok. He's called Dracula Mm. in the film, which... On paper, and it's funny that you mentioned your partner Googling it, it does kind of become confusing because the film is Nosferatu. It's it's an homage in many ways to Murnau's one, but then it's also much more straightforward because of legal reasons, adaptation of the Dracula novel. Let's talk about kind of the, the vampiric element of it first. And what do you make of the way that he updates and presents Nosferatu? Let's call him that for the purposes of clarity. And... Klaus Kinski's performance. Well, Klaus Kinski's performance, I think, is really interesting because um, if you see like a Gwyr, Wrath of God, and you know mm. what I know of his work, you know he was a, a large performer, and this is quite. <laughs> That's a very generous way of putting it. I mean, you know, I mean, I appreciate that kind mm-hmm. of acting. Obviously, I watch a lot of silent films, so I'm into it. But you know, it's very restrained here. Mm-hmm. I read this anecdote that said that they uh, that he would let him have a tantrum on set, so he'd be exhausted by the time he came to. <laughs> and I yes. think that's so patronising, but possibly true. I have no idea how these things work. Um, but you know, it's very restrained, and mm-hmm. it's almost like he's confined. You know, in the in this odd way, which is really powerful because. It's open and light, this film, and yet people are very constrained in their movements and where they go. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the shocking element, if you've come from 1922, fresh off the boat from 1922, like I did, uh, is sort of hear the noise of of blood sucking. And actually, it's suddenly a little bit more physical. It is a lot more physical, isn't it? <laughs> it's almost... Um... Not to jump too far ahead, but there is kind of almost sexual overtones to it, especially in the way that he approaches uh, Lucy's character. Mm. You mentioned kind of a little bit before uh, the way that Herzog uses color in yeah. the film. What do you make of the of the visuals of the film? 
Oh, well, I mean, I love the use of colour, the sort of the sort of white um, house at the beginning and and, mm. and the way that um, certain people's faces, Isabella Gianni and um, mm -hmm. Klaus Kinsey's faces, are always washed out. So you instantly know the connection between them is going to be there. There's this intensity to her performance, which is really wonderful. And a lot of it is to do with the way that she is dressed and made up, as well mm. as, you know, her, her acting. I... I thought, how do you do a film that is obviously in black and white and so has been remembered in this mm. in this slightly misremembered way sometimes? I think people remember Nosferatu as being more black and more white, if you know what I mean. They don't see the shades of grey in the, in the mise-en-scene of that film. And he's really replicated the look of the film. I honestly felt like it was somehow I was transported into the world of this black and white film that I'd seen before. I uh, really, really enjoyed that. And yet I had... A few things, as you say, the sexuality mm. of Orlok, Dracula, Nosferatu, whatever his name is, <laughs> <laughs> and the physicality of the bloodletting mm. sort of uh, amped up the volume turned up on them in all ways. And it really sort of hits you quite hard. It's, I mean, it's not a gory film no, by no, most no. standards. The, yeah, there may have been a comment in my house about, well, that wasn't scary, <laughs> which... I never believe anyone when they say a film didn't scare them. Um, but you know, <laughs> did you but, you find know. it as in, did you find that this version of Dracula Orlok Nosferatu is as unsettling as the Morneau version? Personally, I didn't find it, and I expected to. I expected mm. to be more scared, especially I did the whole turning off all the lights and all that kind of thing. Mm. Um, you know, I expected to be more scared because sometimes people often talk to me about um, mm. film and they say, oh, you know, obviously things are scarier now because they're more explicit, or obviously films are more exciting now because they have this and that and the other. And it's interesting that I could see exactly how you could have made it a, mm. a scarier film. You know, you could see how it could have been more explicit in those ways, but it's completely dialed down. When you think of other on-screen Draculas, mm -hmm. it, it appears to be sort of willfully refusing you all the kind of sex appeal and all the gore and all the histrionics that we associate with those things. And, you know, we all love the Dracula vibe and, you know, Francis Ford Coppola and so mm -hmm. on. But, but you take away all those pleasures and keep, give us just the pleasures of the sort of pastoral original. And, I mean, I have no idea... Uh, how we thought it was going to be a hit in 1979, <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, it just works so beautifully. I was actually, I was actually quite floored by it. Mm. I mean, the, I'm not even going to try to understand Werner Herzog's mind. It is unique, and I love that for, <laughs> I love him for it. But yeah. I did find it really interesting. I wonder what your thoughts are on the way that it presents the figure of the vampire because as you mentioned kind of the the draculas that we've seen on screen um that the sort of the idea of the vampire is presented as quite an appealing one because he's a monster but he's a he's a monster only when um he wants to be you know other than that usually vampires are presented as quite human looking able to meld and actually quite appealing you know the yeah. idea of just a human being who can live forever in exchange for this grotesque kind of need to feed on on human blood but in this in this version, it's very much presented almost as a kind of disease, as an affliction, as opposed to a supernatural power. What did you make of the of the way that vampirism really is presented in in this version? Well, I was. I mean, it's quite interesting that he brings out very much the idea of vampirism as a disease, as you say, which sort of begins in in Nosferatu, or particularly mm. in the context of Nosferatu, the original. I mean, um. 
what's wonderful, I really think, about this film, mm. it's it, what it does add to the original is a certain amount of humanity within its lead characters. It gives them a little bit more, um, a more brain power, and in the case of Dracula, it gives him a lot more humanity. I mean, Klaus Kinski looks at you, looks at the camera with those eyes, and you see a sort of tortured soul. Mm. Whereas, you know, with Orlok, you know, I love that film, but, you know, he is presented almost as he could be made of papier-mâché in some ways. He's a terrifying figure. Whereas Klaus Kinski takes you mm. into the the idea of what would it mean you know to live alone for so long the the sort of the real horror story of the mm. vampire you know i recently watched um uh, for another reason i really recently watched near dark which i'm sure you'll mm-hmm. be talking about in this podcast yeah. and similarly you know really thinking about the idea of whether you do or don't really want to be a vampire and the mm-hmm. idea that it could be medically cured as well uh it, it came, I mean, there was quite a good double bill I did on successive Saturday nights, actually, but it wasn't, it wasn't on purpose. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was incredibly moved by uh, mm. Kinski's Dracula. When I was watching it, I was sort of cynically thinking, well, that's a very um, over-the-top dramatic thing to say, you know, time is an abyss and all of these like beautiful monologues that he has. But there is an obsession or an interest more like in the concept of time and how time is experienced by Nosferatu uh, as an eternal creature. What do you think kind of Herzog is, is trying to explore through w- with kind of with the idea of time? I mean, I'm sure he has lots on his mind. I <laughs> I loved all his sort of rather sort of poetic and grandiose speeches because I think that that's what Orlok was trying to say, you know, and really you see all the sort of texts in the original film. I think that, you know, sometimes we understand the horror of something mm. through our own desires. And obviously that's a theme that comes out in horror lots of the time. You know, maybe you're drawn to the vampire. That's the obvious one, isn't it? But mm. um we're all scared of, or most of us are scared of mortality, especially in times of, you know, illness or war, that particularly comes to the, the forefront. And, but then it's like, what if you got what you wished? What if you got to never die? If you, mm. you had the gift of immortality, how would that time prey on your mind? And of course it becomes another horror. It's that kind of thing where, you know, we, we hate the fact that we don't know what other people are thinking, but of course if we really knew, we'd be tortured by all this extra knowledge, you know, and mm. it's constantly the idea that the the vampire has this sort of gift of youth, as it were, mm. but actually it's a torment. Uh, and I think it does become the idea of time because we all know that, you know, if you've got had a had a restless night, half an hour can seem like a long, long time. Mm. So the idea of living for eternity is something that actually, well, I think the idea is that you know that you would be driven insane mm. and, you know, Dracula is insane. Let's move on kind of to Lucy, who I think is, who is portrayed by Isabella Janney in this version. And I think kind of having seen them back to back in the last couple of days has been, is a lot, is given a lot more agency in this film, I think. So first of all, kind of what do you make of the Count's obsession with her from the very first sight of her in the photograph? I mean, it's hard to sort of think about it without thinking about, you know, the long distant memory of reading the novel and Mm -hmm. being told that there's these ideas. I mean, there always is this love story element, isn't there, between Dracula... I've no idea what any of these characters are called at this point. Um, Between Dracula and Lucy. (laughs) (laughs) Like there is between Dracula and Mm. the young man, who I now have 
Yes, Harker in this case, sorry. Yes. (laughs) And I think one of the disturbing things that more campy Dracula films Uh really play on is the idea that, you know, the the vampire is always obviously bisexual and so you might think that he might be after one person but he might be destroying a relationship in a completely different dimension uh, together and he's obviously disturbing all our sort of heteronormative ideas about Mm -hmm. this, that this young estate agent and his fiancé would have. the connection between them is clearly um, much deeper than that, though, in this mm. film. There's a sort of suggestion that she's already there, isn't there? I think, uh, I don't know, because, you know, you always have these crosscuts in any Dracula film. Yeah. But here, I think it runs a lot deeper. And as I say, a lot of that is to do with the way that she talks and the mm. way that she looks. I mean, she's she's kind of vampire-ready. Yeah, she is, which is interesting because actually she... The connection between her and Harker seems to be much stronger, though, in this version. Like, even her, they're kind of almost, I don't know, um, mental connection in the way that they, uh, she reacts to him being in, de- in danger seems much more intensely devoted to Harker than she is to Dracula. But their connection just seems much more, I don't know, physical, visceral, if that makes mm. sense. Yeah, I mean, I think there are there are many ways in which you could argue that in the original film, you know, him having this partner, she's there because she has this function to play in the film. It's the depiction of the relationship between the two is depicted as innocent and part of that sort of world that's under threat. Whereas I think in the nineteen seventy nine film, we sort of take their bond and we really explore how it gets tested by the arrival of Dracula, etc. And um, also, you know. People have dialogue and you immediately give them a little bit more interior space, mm. I think. Which is, you know, cr- true and correct. I'm not not being sarcastic about sound film. Not today. <laughs> and let's talk about that scene between Dracula, Orlok, Nosferatu. <laughs> this is very confusing. <laughs> the kind of guy with the teeth. The guy with the teeth? The, the bald guy with the teeth? Um, <laughs> let's talk about him and his with Lucy at the very end which is the downfall of pointy teeth guy <laughs> and and like uh, I alluded to before has a much more overtly sexual vibe to it than the original Nosferatu and I thought I was reading too much into it but then when I was when I was um, reading up a couple of bits before we started recording Isabella Janney has also gone on record saying that she very specifically played it in that in that way I mean, I suppose it's strange because obviously it's quite a strange and sick idea that two, you know, healthy people should not have any idea about. Um, but it's much, it's somehow much more satisfying for us to understand that she mm-hmm. desires to do this mm-hmm. than she's a sacrifice. Yes. And of course, you know, this is this is why it sort of brings it on. And I think that, you know, I think people do have trouble with the Lucy character and Mina as well. Um, in the Dracula myth, we have always, it's almost like a problem. What do we do with the Victorian heroine who isn't really a heroine anyway? You know, mm-hmm. so the, the Victorian supporting character, is, it's not, not necessarily great for us. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's quite disturbing, that final scene. Mm. I, th- I think it's a solution to a problem. And obviously for some people, I'm sure it's quite a sexy solution to a problem. I find it obviously personally a bit creepy, <laughs> but you know, it's a, it's a vampire film. It's meant to be, uh, you know, it doesn't feel like the sort of, you know, often we see that kind of scene and it's kind of the glorious rebirth of mm-hmm. the young woman as some 
you know, she's going to become a vampire. And that's not really what this is about. It's more about um, it's more about getting us to the point that we know we have to get to, but getting us there in a way that we believe more. I, th- I think that's what my reading of it was, mm. more that it's more believable. But I don't know. I maybe have to sit with that one for a while. <laughs> and I wanted to ask you kind of like your thoughts about the ending of this film, because um, in, in the Murnau film, kind of everyone, well, dies. But... <laughs> But in this one, kind of after Lucy, um, you know, kills kills Dracula, Nosferatu, the tooth guy. Mm-hmm. She kills the tooth guy. She sacrifices herself, but kind of, you know, with a lot more purpose. And uh, I, I even read it kind of as her manipulating and making sure that she gets the job done mm-hmm. um, in that situation. But Harker uh, comes back as a vampire himself in and exhibiting the very same kind of physical traits, the very pointy teeth, the super pale skin, all mm. of this. And, and he sort of smiles at the end. So the curse of Dracula is prolonged which is a departure from the from the Morneau version what did you make of this of this twist in the ending I mean it's great ending isn't it it's absolutely great I mean you've got a film about contagion uh you've got a myth about contagion a novel about contagion and Mm -hmm. to to end with it having neatly been wrapped up I hate to say that in you know winter 2020 but the idea that contagion will end mm-hmm. one day quickly is is a comforting myth for children isn't it that's not how contagion works sadly so yeah i mean i actually found it quite interesting because then mm-hmm. of course you set yourself on this circle of thinking well you know you know he sort of um they they go off on the horse don't they mm-hmm. and you think well where's he going to go and is he going to live in isolation and you know would we next see him looking as grotesque as Dracula, that's mm. his name. Or will we next see him as the incarnation of a vampire that we see in so many other films, a sort of dapper, too seductive gentleman? It's interesting to me. I thought, you know, I, I thought it was a much better ending before 1979, shall we say. <laughs> <laughs> it's also interesting because it kind of takes away the the quote-unquote specialness of Dracula. The fact that he, mm. by, the, by the sheer fact that there's someone else who inherits his traits or mm. has the same traits as he does, kind of makes him just a vampire as opposed to the vampire mm-hmm. if that makes sense he's no longer kind of this icon because he can be replaced and yeah. replicated and he's not that special <laughs> i mean you know that's one way to take dracula down a peg or two i mean obviously <laughs> the idea of a vampire who he stays at an a castle mm. is is much safer i mean the one of the terrifying th- whole things about dracula is the fact that he plans to come and invade another yes. town and the amount of death and devastation that he wreaks en route is is actually every time i watch a version of this film <laughs> of this story i should read the novel more often uh you know <laughs> i get shocked again by how many people die you know that's the whole point mm-hmm. of it it's an absolute plague and he is a plague and and that's why it's interesting to me to have been just recently watching near dark because you mm-hmm. definitely get that sense that there's lots of them out there and to bring both of these films together really it's interesting you mentioned kind of the idea of the plague and of him being a a symbol of contagion really Mm -hmm. and one of the things that I'd completely forgotten really about both of these adaptations is how much time is devoted to the townsfolk and how they talk about Nosferatu and the vampire how they talk about all the superstitions you know this idea of um, the Harker character picking up a book and learning from a book kind of all the superstitions around this undead creature how do you what do you think both of these films kind of deal with the idea of superstition, of, of lore, and how that creates that myth of the vampire. 
Oh, I mean, that's a great question. I think, you know, one of the things is, you know, it's it's always, you know, just a really potent horror idea that when you've read about it, and of course, you know, it isn't true. And then we we turn around and prove that it really is true. And, you know, there's a there's an axe maniac outside your house. You know, the idea that the urban legend becomes true is, mm-hmm. is what you get in all the 1980s and 90s films, isn't it? But, you know, here we're going back to the folk legends. Mm-hmm. I mean... There's such a wealth of material out there mm. that that could be, you know, hit upon. I suppose it's interesting because it works on those both those two levels. You're thinking about the idea of all the mythology coming to life, but you're also working on the basis that it is a little bit like a real plague. It mm-hmm. is a bit like a real thing, you know. I mean, we spent all year reading about symptoms and, uh, you know, death statistics and how you can or can't catch something, you know. And, of course, we all know that as much as we read about these things, it very, offers a very little protection. You know, just because you know there's a werewolf in the forest doesn't mean it won't get you. Um, <laughs> oh, God, I didn't really mean to say something so grim. But it's true, you know. It is true. We, <laughs> yeah, we do live with the knowledge of a lot of danger in the world. And we all have to take risks when we go out and about. Um, we don't think about this in relation to the undead, obviously, mm. but you know, you know, we're aware of crime and we're aware of disease and we're mm. aware of dangerous tides and all these kind of things. And just to add to another level to that, I mm. think it's interesting. Our own personal perception of risk is what this film kind of plays on a lot, or this, this story kind of plays on a lot. It's, uh, it's a very interesting question though. And just to wrap up, what is your own personal favourite on-screen Dracula adaptation? Okay, I'm not allowed to say Sesame Street, am I? <laughs> no, you you can. Of course you can. <laughs> Do you know what? The film that I really, really love that has stayed with me and I think mm-hmm. is is probably quite predictable choices, but it's um, uh, The Girl Walks Home Alone at Night. A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night. Oh, nice. I've just, that film absolutely floored me when I saw it and I love it and I just watched it again recently and yeah I mean that's just I mean but though just even thinking about this mm-hmm. and thinking about what the choices might be and I've been working on a few vampire things elsewhere mm-hmm. uh, I just feel like there aren't too many bad vampires <laughs> vampires mm-hmm. are great vampires are amazing even the bad ones are amazing I mean when you said there are no bad vampires I started thinking about Dracula 2000 and okay. I was like <laughs> <laughs> okay do you know what the thing about the the sort of bad vampire is that mm-hmm. it goes quite quickly into the camp vampire. We've had two very uncamp vampires here, but you know we can all enjoy a campy vampire sometimes. This is true. I, the vampire is probably one of those monsters that works even when he doesn't work. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that may well be true. That may well be true because he's got a certain glamour apart from in these two films. Yeah. These are the outliers. I mean, I don't want to ever want to say the U word about anyone, mm-hmm. but some people would say that they're othered in their appearance, mm-hmm. animalistic in their appearance, mm-hmm. and some people wouldn't consider that as foxy as a man with his hair slicked back and a nice suit on. But they're wrong, obviously. <laughs> we love our beautiful bat-eared vampires. Yes, of course we do, especially with their with their very enviable nail games very great nails <laughs> well exactly i mean you know what it's like to kind of maintain that kind of point it's i mean it hard. takes a lot of work it i does. can't do that i certainly can't <laughs> <laughs> no one i'm sitting around worrying about risks in daily life all the time i'm biting my nails <laughs> pamela thank you so much for your time and for your insight and where can people find out more of your work online and specifically all the vampire stuff that you're doing 
oh, vampires may take a moment to come mm. uh, to come good and to appear in a vampire form. But um, <laughs> honestly, I shout about anything that I'm doing on my Twitter account, which is just at Pam Hutch. So you can see what I'm up to there. Amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you. That's it for this episode of Final Ghost Podcast. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows. If you can, please do take the time to leave us a review or at least a rating on Apple Podcasts. It does really help a lot. You can find out more about what we do on thefinalghost.co.uk and follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at The Final Ghost UK. You can also follow Pamela on Twitter at Pum Hutch, and I am at Anna B. Demented. Thank you for listening. And next week, we're going to be diving deep into some 70s vampire action.